My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Studios and the DTD Podcast. This week, my guest has a robust background spanning two decades as a Navy SEAL across SEAL Team 5, SEAL Team 8, and Special Boat Team 20. My guest ventured through multiple combat theaters in the Pacific, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Graduating from the Revered Buds training in August 97, Class 212, my guest charted a path from an enlisted mineman to a commissioned Navy SEAL officer. His journey is peppered with milestones from sniper training to guiding teams in combat deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. Post-retirement, he navigated to the University of Southern California, steering veteran programs as the Director of Development and standing tall within the President's team as the Manager of Military and Veteran Services. My guest's academic journey includes an outstanding thesis at the Naval Postgraduate School and a Master's of Public Policy, culminating in his current role as Corporate Security Analyst at Dominion Energy, based right in Virginia Beach. He lives by the motto, transition is temporary. Please welcome Mark Green into the studio. What's going on, my friend? I'm so glad we're here. Yeah, finally. It's uh, from start to finish. I think it's been a little over over a month. Lots of uh, text exchanges and really good conversations. So uh, I've been looking forward to uh, doing the podcast for a while. Man, this book fantastic we talked you said i'll send it to you you sent it to me and i want to thank you so much for the personal note that you put in there and i just couldn't give higher reviews about it it was just like i told you before we started this it was just a free-flowing here's my story good bad ugly this is how i transition and a lot of people don't talk about the kind of things that come with transition but you hit the mark beautifully with this book well thank you and i was really torn about writing it because it was such a stigma when i first came and don't write a book we were quiet professionals but looking back on it as i tried to learn about the seal teams, i had to read books you know, somebody wrote about it. Uh, there was a a video that I saw, and really that was only it. And then Marcinko came out with a book, and Dick Couch had a book. So it was a very important topic to me because I found out that so many veterans were taking their own lives. And in this book, you'll see, I, I it was a real possibility for me, and I thought it was time to get the word out to the veterans who are suffering that we're, we're, all, we're constantly going through transitions. And as I was writing, it was initially the, the military transition. But then I was working at USC. Some of the same things happened with the student athletes who were 
dedicating thousands or have dedicated thousands of hours to their craft and then hoping to go to the NFL to the next level. But that's not always, that's a rare possibility, even at USC. And they're going to be professionals, something else, and they're also going to transition. And then you're going to transition from your career, be it military or civilian. You're going to become a parent. Oftentimes, you're going to lose, I lost a parent, got married, got divorced, had kids. So all these transition points were really valuable, uh, taught me a lesson. And I just wanted to hit the entire spectrum because hopefully this book starts off on a micro level of veterans, but then catches fire and, you know, word gets out. Hopefully it reaches the children of service members who are going through it and then the spouses. So they can say, hey, my dad's going through this or my spouse is going through this. Hey, read this book and see if this helps out. And if I can reach one person to decide to not take their own life, then I think it's a success. I want to start out with a couple of definitions with you and get your thoughts on them. And I'm going to give you a couple of words and just give me the first thing that comes to your mind. I want to start with family. Necessity. Tribe. Fleeting. Trust. Earned. Transition. Complicated. Let's go back to family and tribe for a minute, because I think a lot of people put those two words together a lot. And they think, well, this is my family. This is my tribe. But I read in your book, I felt it was different to you because I felt that there were different points in your life where, yeah, that tribe was a family, but it didn't really stick around the entire time. You needed to constantly change your tribe based on the environment you were in, but Mm -hmm. family never changed. Right. So when I had my first daughter, I didn't know what I was doing. She was just this little beautiful pooping and peeing machine that did not need me whatsoever. And so when I described in the book, the babies were born, I was like, good God, what an atrocious little thing this is. And I didn't really connect with my daughter for the first time until she recognized me for the first time. This is uh, either took a month or two months. And, um, I would walk in and say the same thing every day. I'd say, hey, Riley. And she'd look at me like, yeah, whatever. Or I would try to hold her and I stunk or my beard was prickly. So I wasn't really needed. So I I really kind of felt like a third wheel and just trying to play catch up. And then after a while, she, I walked in the door, said, hey, Riley. And she looked at me and smiled. I'm like, that kid must have gas or something. Left Left something in the car, walked out. Came back in, said hi, Riley again. She looked at me again and smiled. And then I was like, nah, this can't be. Did it a third time. And then she knew who I was. And at that point, I was I was done. I was connected. And our relationship really blossomed. And she was just the most wonderful gift that I had ever had. And I had never really approached life. like, I can't wait to have kids. It was... It was in the periphery. I was going to be a SEAL, and that was really it. And then got married, and then 10 months, I think, had a first kid. And, um, you know, it wasn't this 
she's born and she's beautiful and wonderful. It's like it's pretty ugly. And and then they don't <laughs> they don't they don't need you for anything. And but then when you connect, it was really it was the best relationship. So you know, had a son and then a daughter and then another daughter, and each has been equally rewarding went through the same thing after the second one was like oh well i'll fall in love with my son right away same thing atrocious looking when he showed up and didn't need me for a couple months but throughout everything those kids have really just been huge anchor points and they teach me something every day they teach me something about consistency kindness being available and loving them unconditionally so that's the family part of it you know, no matter which platoon I did, you're at a team for two years, you try to make your your impression, and then you're gone. So you, your, your tribes are temporary. And after each tribe experience, you just have your, your family. And um, that was really my foundation, my anchor throughout the 20 years. And since 2016, eight years ago, still the same thing. It's changed after the divorce, but the commitment to them and the joy that they bring is still just the same. Well, you know, we speak about family and we have a lot of your family to get into around here. The first question I want to ask, though, is how important is it to you to have your kids see the messy part of your story? Because every parent can talk about their stuff, but this book puts it all on the line. I haven't been able to have the conversation with them in an in-depth way as I could write it, if that makes sense. They know that I was in the Navy, they know I was a SEAL, and they know I was just dad. But I really had a hard time explaining how the family changed and what caused that to change. So I, I still struggle, struggle with it to this day. Um, if they ask me about it, I'll... I'll tell them all about it, but it's been a really, I haven't, I haven't figured it out yet, but if they asked me, I'll tell them whatever they want to know, but they're teenagers and my daughter just got married. So she's starting her journey. She lives in Paris. My son is almost finished with his engineering degree at Virginia tech. Uh, I have a daughter who's getting ready to go to college next year. And then I have the baby who's 15 and getting them to understand the messy parts of parenting and life and the challenges that are associated with that. I haven't figured it out yet. I haven't figured out how to just have that honest conversation and sit down. It's like, okay, here's what happened. And it's, it's been in pieces, but I haven't sat them down and said, Hey, top to bottom, here's what happened. Okay. But why is it, and I won't say it's easy that you wrote this book because it took a long time. You talk about how long it took you to write it, how much it was in the making. Why is it easier to tell strangers than the people that you love the most and who love you the most and who by all means should be able to handle it? Because I see them all the time and to know that I disappointed them is really hard for me to reconcile uh, I the look on their faces when like the disappointment that's gonna come with fully exposing it um, 
I just, I just have always had a hard time disappointing my kids. And so it's just really having that conversation, seeing the disappointment or confusion, um, and then them not really being able to articulate the questions that they're going to have and the answers I give are going to be brutal and honest and I don't know how they're going to digest it. So that's a really good question. And I, I was really reluctant to, to write this book and I was really almost forced to write it because the gentleman who sponsored me from Pivotal Moments um, and asked me, hey, when are you going to write a book? I was like, ah, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think my story is all that interesting. There are a lot of other people out there with interesting stories. And so finally he heard me speak and said, all right, I've had enough of you. Here's your four ghost writers, pick one. Money's already set aside, write the book. People need to hear this story and um, you have a year, go. So then I had a mission. I was like, well, I have to get this thing done. And, and the way it started off, it was going to just be, like I said, it was just going to be a transition story. But then it just turned into kind of a life story, um, a no holds barred life story of good, bad and ugly. The reason I ask you that is because you and I have talked on numerous occasions on the phone and stuff about your grandfather. Mm-hmm. And a point stood out to me that you didn't really know that much about him. And we're going to get into a, a time when he really kind of tried in his own way to tell you about himself mm-hmm. and you didn't know it until later on. And I almost wonder you found out later on and too late in life, what he was trying to do. Right. Do you ever worry that your kids are going to get to that point and go, I never really knew that guy. I thought I did, but I didn't know him. No, I don't because I'm, I'm really very open with my okay. kids. Okay. Um, they may, they may not know this one chapter, but I'm just their goofy dad who laughs at his okay. own jokes. Let them know what's going on. I over communicate with them involved but not invasive they have their own space but um i'm no i I've, i share everything okay. that they need to know so they're, they're not gonna and, and it's because i didn't get to know both of my grandfathers but the grandfather that you're talking about in this in the book you know i didn't know how talented he was or his life history i just knew him as my big grandfather who was an enormous man and Worked in the still mills, didn't talk a whole lot, and didn't talk with us kids a whole lot. But in the background, he was so proud of all of us. And I uh, found out at his funeral just the depths of the things that man had done. And I was like, I didn't even know that guy. Well, let's talk about that. I want to talk about, in particular, a story that you talk about in the book and a baseball game that he wanted you to sit down and watch. And then he was going to teach you how to play baseball. You ended up playing football, you weren't a baseball player. But let's talk right. about that story and being with your grandfather and learning really the importance of when you can take something in, you should probably take it in and keep your eyes open in every direction because you never know where it's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what, uh, let's talk about it. When you go in and how he kind of tells you to sit down, how he tells you you're going to learn how to play baseball and in kind of his own way. And you and I have once again talked about this offline Let's talk about the man he was and what he was trying to tell you on that day. 
So my grandfather was a was a baseball player, and uh, in the time he grew up, he could only play in the Negro Leagues, which was segregated, and black players couldn't play with white players. And I guess he was just a prolific pitcher. He would watch me all the time. He's like, hey, boy, come over here and sit down. And my cousins were there, and my grandmother was cooking her famous yellow cake, and she was cooking some greens or something. And I'm just like, I don't want to sit with you. I want to go play with my cousins. But, you know, he was serious. I'd never heard him say, get over here. So I, you know, sit next to him, and he has he had this big chair that nobody was allowed to sit in the periphery of this chair, but there was another chair next to him. I was like, boy, get over here. And he was like, you got a strong arm and I want you to learn how to play baseball. And after this game, we're going to go out and play baseball. And I was like, oh, like play catch and stuff? He's like, yeah. But we're going to watch this baseball game first. It's the first time I'd seen him giddy, for lack of a better term. This baseball game was planned and it was a battle of two pitchers. So I'm like, okay, I've never seen grandpa excited about this. So I'm going to go ahead and sit down. And I didn't have a choice, but in my mind, I was like, okay, I'll sit down with grandpa. And he was so into this baseball game. And he had this, this baseball glove. And as the pitching battle went on, he was just whacking his glove. You know, just like, just getting excited. Like, boy, did you just see that pitch? And I didn't know what I was looking at. I just knew that nobody hit the ball. I didn't know what the bases were for, but I knew that nobody was on the bases. And I was just dying of boredom. You know, I was eight or nine years old, and I just really wanted to be somewhere else. And um, game was over, and I looked at him. I was like, yeah, Grandpa, I'm never going to play baseball. And got up and walked away and never looked back at baseball ever again. But what I didn't understand was the level of connection that he was trying to articulate he just didn't have the vocabulary for it. So he was just going to do what he knew best, show this kid about the game that I love, and then we're just going to, I'm going to go teach him because I have all this knowledge as a pitcher and I'm going to make him a great pitcher that's not held back by the Negro Leagues and he can go play wherever he wants. But as an eight-year-old, I was just like, yeah, this is boring. Talk to you later. <laughs> so, you know, he was so... I think he was really disappointed because he couldn't impart that love of baseball on me. And um, had he done it, had had we gone and thrown out in the yard for an hour, and then he explained it to me, and then was like, "Okay, baseball game's coming on. Remember that slider I just told you, taught you how to pitch? This is what that looks like." And then I would have been engaged, and I would have known what I was looking at. But as he wanted to share that love with it it went the opposite direction so as i was at his funeral they're going by it's like he he had a couple of records I was like grandpa used to sing like oh the man had a beautiful voice I'm like shit, i didn't even know that and pitch for the negro leagues and he did things about the community and so i was like i don't even know this guy and then it hit me what he was trying to do and i was like damn but football was my dad's thing, and I could really connect with football. And when I went off to college to play quarterback, my grandfather was so happy. He's like, man, a few words. He's like, 
boy, good thing that arm didn't go to waste. But he, you know, he would come to my practices at Kent State sometimes. This was an hour away. And I would come by and visit him, and he's just, this is my grandson, Mark. He plays quarterback. I try to get him to play baseball, but he's using that arm for something. And that's the first time I'd seen actual just pride that the man had. And um, even though baseball wasn't what I chose, I chose something to do with, with this strong arm that I had. And I really gained a lot of respect from him at his funeral, but the, all the questions that I had to, after that funeral, I could never ask him because that opportunity was gone. Another story about your grandfather that I love is the cookies in the drawer. <laughs> and I think it goes to a deeper level talking about him of just how much he did care about you guys. Cause you can say it, you can write about it, but there were things that he did little tiny things that later on in life, once again, you learned that he did. So can we talk mm -hmm. about the cookies in the drawer? So you'd walk in the front door and his palace, his kingdom was right at the front door and walk straight in through to the kitchen. My grandmother was always cooking something and off to the left, it was his cookie drawer and all the kids would come in and we'd steal cookies and my grandfather would get out of my cookie jar, go out and play. So we'd steal some cookies and run out. And one day we just showed up and um, he's like, what are you kids doing here? And like, hey, we just stopped by. We wanted to come, come by and see our cousins. So he just stood up and got up and left the house in a huff, like cursing, right? Well, my grandmother told me years later, she's like, that man got so excited when you kids were getting ready to show up and he would stock that thing full of cookies. And what happened was the cookie drawer was empty and he was so upset that he ran out. And, and before he left, he's like, stay out of that cookie jar. Don't even go in the kitchen. And grandpa, like he was almost yelling. So we stayed out of the kitchen. He went to the store, bought cookies and put them in the cookie drawer and went out on the porch. You guys can go in the kitchen now. So we knew we'd raid it. And my grandmother said that he's like, I love those damn kids. And I got to make sure they have these cookies every time they stop by. <laughs> so, but you know, I didn't know that until I was in my late thirties. I didn't find that out about my grandma. She's like, that man is like, you kids could do no wrong. And he was so upset that one time you guys came, there were no cookies in that cookie drawer for you, for you kids. How does that make you feel about the relationship that you had with him then knowing that there maybe could have been a different one, but I don't know. And all the stories you've told me about him, I don't know if there could have been a different kind of relationship. Right. There, there couldn't have been, he was affectionate in the way that he could be. Right. It wasn't as far as, hey, come on and let me hug my grand my grandkids. He would just in the background do a lot of stuff for us. He would make sure that the cookie thing was done. He'd make sure the house was clean. He'd make sure grandma, you know those kids like that yellow cake, make sure whip up some yellow cake. You know, they love your greens, make up some greens. Make sure that, but he always wanted us to feel welcome in his house because you're my grandkids and just a bunch of boys running around and he just got so much joy out of his grandkids. And, um, I used to ride my bike in circles. I could ride my bike in circles for 
hours at a time. So I found out later he would rush home from work whenever I was at the house. He'd sit on the porch, put in his chewing tobacco, and would just watch me ride circles and just laugh his ass off at his grandson riding circles. Seems like a, a pretty great man, and, and it's interesting that you put him prominently in the book. Something that you said, though, is interesting to me. You said that I didn't want to learn about baseball. He set me down and he showed me the way, but I didn't want to learn that way. Mm-hmm. And you had that same kind of connection, relationship with your father. You were a hard-headed kid, and you, you mentioned it in there, that you were going to do what you were going to do. Can we talk about how that transfers over from grandfather to father and then you kind of as a father? So I ask a lot of questions and it's not because I'm defiant. It's just because I really want to understand what people are telling me so I can absorb it in the way that I absorb it. So I say it as like I get information in, in two dimensions, right? but I need to see it in three dimensions. So I ask questions to fill in the blanks, to change it from two dimensions to three dimensions. And then once I see it, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So once it makes sense, then, then I'm fine. But it was that generation, if you ask questions, it was a direct challenge to the parent. And I was like, no, dad, I'm not, I'm not being defiant. I just need to understand it. And um, that generation was a lot different. And, you know, it was be seen but not heard. So now, looking back at my grandfather and looking back to my dad, my dad was always around. He was always present and he was always proud in the way that my grandfather was proud. And he also did a lot as opposed to say a lot. So what I learned was I need to be over-communicated too. And then I'll figure it out. So what that translated, I think I took the best parts of my grandfather and my father that I learned as an adult and say, I'm going to over communicate with my kids just in case they see the world as I see it. And I'm going to explain things to the point to where I hope they get it, but it's also open to as many questions as they need because they're going to go off on their own one day and I want them to know the world and I'd be a safe space to where they can come and get information and ask as many questions as they want. And I, I, I did that as a sniper school instructor too. And it's because when I, when I went through sniper course, I didn't understand it. And I thought that was a bad way to teach sniper because you know, it's a life or death and you're out on, on your own. And you need to understand the art of sniping. So when I went to the, the sniper instructor course, I over communicated with my students. And I said, ask as many questions as you want. This is my job and I'm going to stay here until you understand it. If that means wake me up at 10 o'clock and say, hey, what, is, what does this mean? And I always made time for because it was important. And then I was also filling in the blanks of of my childhood is like, I want these men to succeed and I'm going to overachieve and over communicate. So the best thing that they could do is fire me. I was waiting for the time that they learned it to the point. They're like, Hey, Mark, I got it. Just stand off on the, on the background. If I have a question, I'll ask you, but 
you're fired. And that was the best, that was the best day of, of uh, each curriculum was when my students fired me and they, they got it. And if they needed a correction or a nudge, I was there for it, but it wasn't because I didn't put in maximum effort to make sure that they learned their crafts. And I approached that with my kids. And if they ask me a question and I'll explain it to them, I was like, do you, do you understand? And they're like, no, what does this mean? And I'll just fill in the blanks until it clicks like a solving a Rubik's cube. And I'm like, ah, okay, this makes sense. And my kids can come wake me up at two in the morning if they have a question because that's how important it is. So I want to be, you know, a role model for them, but I also want to be open and available. That's how I really show compassion and love for, for people is just to be available and open and honest and let them know that I care about them. Third generation military. You always mm -hmm. knew you were going to go in. I don't think you really knew that much about Navy SEALs. <laughs> I think you saw, like you said, one video and that was what would did it. When you go though, and you go into the Navy and, and you start this life of service, because that's what it is. Is it, I, I ask a lot of people, is it everything that you thought it was going to be? No, it was, it was close. It was damn close. But when you go to combat or to go to combat theater for the first time, you think you're just going to be opping for 12 missions a night and um, the op tempo is just going to be out of control, right? And then you're bored a lot of times because the way warfare works with us, you know, there's a lot of moving parts that have to happen for your target to actually be there. And that could take days. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, the sun's at 100% looms, So you can't go out tonight because they're going to be able to see you. It's like, huh, okay. Or the intel package is bad or he's, the target's not there. So everything's on hold. Trucks are always running. Gear's always ready. And as soon as we see him, you can execute this target. But until then, you know, go twiddle your thumb somewhere, go play a video game until you're ready to go. So I was just like, well, this isn't what I expected. But when, when it does happen, you know, it's quick, it's violent. And you're always curious as to, am I trained well enough for this? And the SEAL team's doing an incredible job. Special Operations Community does an incredible job of getting you prepared for warfare. So once bullets start flying or chaos happens, you're over-trained for it, and you're over-prepared, so you can think on target. And um, things that really set Special Operations apart is, Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. Right, so once the plan kind of, the enemy has a say, so once things start to go kinetic or against the plan, we can really, we're, we're trained to adjust to it really quickly and then um, still execute the mission because that's what we're trained to do at a really high level. If we even go back as far as your basic training and people may be doubting you or doubting what you wanted to do, I think that's more of my question that I'm asking. Is it everything that you thought it would be or did you find a new set of struggles when you first came in? Because there was self-doubt. There was doubt mm -hmm. from complete strangers. And talking to you now, I've always, you know, I've told you that even when you're succeeding, you sometimes present it as failure. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing that in basic, when you're doing that in buds, 
Is that everything you thought it would be? Or was that a new part of it that you never even put into the equation? Um, so a little bit of both. I went in and the humility I had, or it was out of respect for what I was getting into, even boot camp, you know, it's, it's not hard, but you know, I res- I respected it. And, um, so then when I got to, to buds, it was, you're always under the gun. And I was, you know, and I got there unprepared cause I, you know, you really can't prepare for it. And every day was a kick in the balls, but I'm like, well, okay, I'm not the best swimmer or I may not be the fastest, um, runner, but each day wasn't as hard as I thought it would be, but the overall six months was much harder than I thought it would be. And I always just like, I always felt like I was behind and I always felt like one mistake away from packing my bags and going home. And I think that's kind of by design, but, um, yeah, it was, it was much more challenging and I had to dig a lot deeper to finish it. And then I had to just really fight my natural inclination to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm just not quite getting it. So I just need to work a little bit harder. So when I knew I was needed to work on the swim, this, the instructor was, you know, almost having an aneurysm, but it was like, look, I need to figure this thing out. So put your aneurysm on hold while I let you know that I need to learn how to swim better. And he's just like, Okay, yeah, come at eight Saturday morning. I was like, okay, is that easy? He's like, yeah, I'll see you then. <laughs> so it was, it was, I could recognize where I was falling behind. And instead of just saying, well, I'll figure it out, well, just talk to the expert here. He may be having an aneurysm, but God damn it, he's going to teach, he's going to tell me how to figure this thing out. And every time I asked, it was, <sighs> I earned a little bit of respect for them because, you know, they're not very approachable. And I was just like, this is a goal that I have to complete. So I'm just going to ask you as opposed to um, fall further behind. So I was always trying to not fall behind. And the only option I had was to either ask my classmates who equally didn't know more than I did, or I could talk to the experts and say, Hey, instructor, I need some help in this area and their job is to facilitate you graduating if you want to, if you want to be there, but they're also there to facilitate you going away if you want to go away. And I wanted to be there and I was having a good time and I just wanted to stay and I wanted to finish this goal and I wanted to be a SEAL. So that meant that I had to be uncomfortable, not only through the course, but it also had to be uncomfortable letting them know that, Hey, I'm, I'm not cutting it right now. Um, 90% there. I need you to get me to 95, 96%. And what they saw was each time I went, they're like, green, you're doing fine. I was like, yeah, but I'm not in the top three runners. I'm in the top five. I'm like who fucking cares? Get your ass, get your ass out of here. But they would come the, every once in a while they come and stink a nugget. And it's like, Hey, use your back more on these push-ups. If you do this one little trick, you're gonna get there 
and then they'd kick me in the boot and like you're, you're the worst student ever but it, they had a lot of respect for me because i think they appreciated that hey this this course is hard on everybody and he wants to be here is it true that you told him they gave you the wrong uniform at boot camp <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I did not research Navy uniforms. <laughs> so, um, Mark, I gotta ask you though: Do you really need to research uniforms to tell somebody this is the wrong uniform? It was the wrong uniform. Okay, I'm in the Navy SEAL uniform. What are these blue <laughs> jeans? <laughs> so, so I show up at boot camp, and you know they're, they're processing us, and they give us these blue jeans awful blue jeans bell bottoms i'm like no and then they hand us this other blue shirt that's equally awful and then they give us these boondockers that are steel-toed boots and i'm like whoa 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 i need a navy seal uniform and the guy looks at me he's like son you're in the navy you're not even gonna make it as a seal anyway and i was like what does that what does that mean but then I had to put on these dungarees and wear them around for, for eight weeks because, you know, I knew what the Marine Corps uniform looked like. I knew what the Army uniform looked like. I had no clue what the regular Navy uniform looked like because I wasn't going to be a regular Navy guy. I was going to be a SEAL. And How thought, bad is that uniform? Oh, it's, <laughs> it's great now. But when I showed up in the 90s, I was like, oh, my God, this is awful. Yeah. Bell bottoms? Boon, boon doctors. <laughs> Let's talk about that guy a little more that told you you'll never make it as a Navy SEAL because I think that you took uh, some undertones to what he was saying to you. He wasn't just saying it to you to get you out of his face. I think that you took personal offense to it. Yeah, he didn't think I could swim. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it was... It was known that the the black students had a harder time swimming because you know either playing baseball or football or track or, or something, but you're not swimming. So, but my dad taught us how to swim, and we were like five. So I've been swimming since I was five, and I was like, well, why wouldn't I be able to swim? I've been swimming since I was five, and then I was like, wait a second. This guy didn't think I can can't swim because I'm I'm black. And I was like, "All right, Chief Rhodes, you're on the list now." So, um, but I but I knew what he was talking about, and I was like, "Okay, I'm I'm going to make it in spite of you." But later on in your career, even ignorance is ignorance. You go to OCS, you take over the class, and an instructor there doesn't think you can swim. Yeah, yeah. So. We are getting a safety brief. Like, okay, here's, here's what the pool evolutions are. But the guy's just looking at me. And I was like, this guy didn't think I can swim. I was like, I'm still going through this. 2003, I'm, 2004, I'm still looked at as somebody who can't swim. I, I, I want to stop you, though, because I want to ask you, what are you thinking there? Because we're going to get into your OCS packet in a minute. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk about these two things because I think in full honesty, full disclosure, you thought that you were going to have trouble because you were black mm -hmm. and there was a lot of white people and you mm -hmm. thought you were going to get trouble from the white people, but you found that 
it was ignorance all around. I mean, everybody had a piece of the ignorance in it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about that one first, about the not being able to swim in boot camp. Mm-hmm. And then you go all the way through. You're a SEAL. You go to OCS training. And there's a dickhead here that thinks you can't swim. Right. And you've gone these years apart, and you still see the same ignorance. And then we'll get into the OCS packet and the ignorance that came from another area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as the instructor's looking, and he's he's thinking, I can't swim. So I could either get pissed off about it, or I could fuck with him and make and have a good time with it. So the um, so he's my shadow the whole time, and and I'm acting like I can't swim very well. <laughs> and uh, some of the other students are going to the bottom of the pool. And so I look at this guy, and I was like, well. I'm bored of what I'm doing. Let me let me screw around with this guy. So I go to the bottom of the pool. I just kind of sit down there, and I see him up on the pool deck, and he's just jumping up and down. And I uh, I come to the surface, and I was like, "Hey, is everything okay?" He's like, "You can't do that, sir." And I was like, "I can't do what?" He's like, "You can't go to the bottom of the pool." I was like, "Well, everybody else is going to the bottom of the pool," and he looks at me. He's just like, "Shit, I'm caught." So I let the class know, I was like, hey, this guy didn't think I could swim. So let's just, you know, collectively just kind of screw around with this guy. So then we do it again. And two instructors come over and I go to the bottom of the pool and they're both up there jumping. It's like, we told you this once before. We cannot, you cannot go to the bottom of the pool and sit down there. I was like, everybody else is doing it. So my drill instructor comes in. And he's sitting in, in the in the back, and he's just kind of watching. And he knows what's going on. And the class is getting ready to go. And he's he's actually pissed because even though we had a love-hate relationship, we had a lot of respect for each other. So finally, he sees what's going on and screams across the pool deck. He's like, he's a Navy SEAL, you idiot. And the light goes on. They're just like, wait a second. Wait, so he's black. He's a Navy SEAL. So by default, he's one of the better swimmers in the Navy. So just to watch their faces like, shit. And then we had the final relay race of the day, and I just smoked everybody. And uh, (laughs) so so I just look at him. It's like, hey, man, just don't assume people can't swim. Like, be professional. Well, assumptions, and and that's what I was kind of getting around to. When you were in Bud's training, you talked to the instructors, like you said, and you said, hey, I'm not this, and they said, you're doing fine. Let's do Mm -hmm. this. And one of them told you, the secret to Bud's is that Bud's is not for the guys like you. Bud's is here for the people that are not SEALs. Right. But you took that into everything you did, and I brought up that OCS story on purpose because in Bud's training – and sniper training, and OCS training, you lived by that motto. Even though you knew you were supposed to be places at BUDS, at OCS, at maybe not sniper school, we'll get into that, but (laughs) maybe not sniper school. But even though you knew you were supposed to be there, you still acted like maybe you weren't supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. So how does that work in your whole life? And how, at an, I would think at a certain point, it would be counterproductive to you. I didn't, I didn't see it as counterproductive. I felt like it helped me keep my edge so I wouldn't get so comfortable that I, like, uh, I've, I've got it made. 
Man, it, it went a lot of, to my to my upbringing that I just wasn't not quite good enough to be there, but maybe like imposter syndrome. Somebody's going to realize that gigs up and you shouldn't be here. And I don't, and, and I really can't pinpoint why that is, but um, that's something I, I carried with me my whole life. Football, OCS, boot camp, even. It's just maybe, maybe I've bitten off more than I can chew. Maybe I'm not supposed to be here and somebody's going to figure that out. So instead of giving them a chance to figure that out, I'm going to overachieve and prove to myself that I should be here. But that's the interesting part to me, how you ended that statement. I have to prove to myself that I'm here. Mm -hmm. You're there. You made it. What's the internal turmoil there? I get imposter syndrome when you talk about maybe I wasn't everything that I was supposed to be, but we're talking in every phase of your life, every school you went to, your master's degrees. You you mm-hmm. talk about failure in college, dropping yep. out of college, working menial jobs. You never seem to feel you need to be where you're at, yet at every point in your life, that's exactly where you were supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so I, I just try and figure that out, and it's all through the book. You say it over and over. Well, I wasn't doing the best, and I wasn't the best, so maybe I don't belong here. You don't have to be the best to be there. So I'm just trying to get in your mind state of how you approach these things. And like I said, you said it wasn't, but how it doesn't become counterproductive after a while. Yeah. You know, so my dad sat me down right when I was getting ready to play football. He's like, all right, one thing that we don't do, once you start something, there is no quitting you're going to sit on the bench if you're not good enough but you're going to you're going to follow through with what you're doing and sometimes i would do things that i didn't want to do i would just start it so so i would finish it and it was i don't know i just had this really tenacious thing it's like i i want to do this thing I want to do this thing, but I don't know if I'm good enough to, to do it. And it just, it's just been, and I don't know, having a hard time answering because, you know, no one's ever posed this, this question in this way. It's just that I just need to figure it out. But at the same time, I'm really fighting against myself of, Man, do, do I really deserve to be here? And um, yeah. And, and and that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. I understand not being cocky about it, not saying, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm the best here and I'm I'm all that I get all of that. But then I look at the opposite end of the spectrum with you, and sometimes you're like, Man, I'm not the best, so I must be the worst. In in a sense, is how mm-hmm. you put it in the book. And, and you didn't write that in particular, but I got a sense of it reading it that if you're not the best, then Maybe you're the worst mm-hmm. and you have to be the best to not be the worst. Yeah. And there's never that middle ground. There's never that, man, let me just make it through this and then figure it out on the backside. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like my goal when I got to, to buds was do every rep 
in your morning PT. Two hours workout, do every push up, do every setup, do every pull up. And I remember I that was my goal, and I was just like, I've got to do every single rep, and then I'm good enough to to be in this class. So the day I got, it was in first phase right before Hell Week. I got every rep on everything, uh, and it was just like, oh, all right, I did it. But then Hell Week shows up, and you're like, okay, I suck again. So I'm just never comfortable with my achievement. I always think that I can do a little bit better. I can work just a little bit harder. And being in the middle, I felt like I was, if I was in the middle, I might as well be at the end. Let me add one more layer onto it then. You also say in your personality that you didn't ever feel different. You never felt, hey, man, I'm supposed to be a superhero. I'm supposed to feel like this. I'm supposed to feel like the greatest thing. But that never happened. Mm -mm. And so it adds one more level to me where I'm trying to figure you out and you say, if I'm not the worst, maybe I should be the last. But then when you are the best or when you get through it and you make it through Bud's training, you you earn your trident, you do all those things, then you're like, huh, I don't feel any different. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, you want to be the best and you worry about being the worst, but then when you are the best, you don't feel any different than when you said, I might be the worst. Right. Yeah. So when the story you're talking about was after Hell Week, man, I thought there was just going to be this, oh, and you've arrived and I was going to open up my shirt and there was going to be the Superman S on my chest. And, you know, I, I, I did it, you know, 180, 166 of us started 30 something of us made it through hell week. I did really great in hell week. And when they secured us on Friday, you know, you, you'd done one of the hardest things in the world in the military. And I was just like, I still feel like Mark. And instructor cunning saw, I was like, Hey, instructor cunning. I got a question for you. I was like, I show up and I, you know, I failed at, failed at college. My football career didn't come out the way I wanted it to. And I join the Navy and I'm here at Bud's and, you know, by all measures, I'm, I'm successful. I thought I was going to feel different after they rang that bell on Friday saying, Hey, you secured from hell week. And I felt exactly the same. And he said, yeah, of course you feel the same. I was like, this isn't for you. Buds is for all the people who aren't seals. And then I was just like, well, God damn it. That makes sense. And he filled in that blank to where, Okay, you're not going to feel different because this is who you are. You are this thing, and you're not going to quit no matter what. You have the physical and mental capacity. You've earned the right to do this job, and you're not going to feel any different because this course isn't going to change you at all. It's just going to enhance the best things about your character and your drive and your motivation, and this is just a way of testing it. And he said, Buds is just... You saying, I want to be a Navy SEAL, and the Navy saying, hmm, yeah, I don't believe you. Prove it. When I finally figured out BUDS, and I could bring it into chunks that I could manage, basically four hours at a time, 
then it became easy. And then I was just having a good time. I was hanging out in San Diego with like-minded guys working out on the beach in Southern California. And that's really how I approached it. And I, you know, I was just like, physically I can do it. Mentally I can do it. And I'm having a good time and um, I'm supposed to be here. So just, just, just have a good time with it. And I did. And um, I think I graduated third or fourth in my class, but I still wanted to do just a little bit better. (laughs) And, (laughs) and that goes back to that thing that we're talking about. But let's let's move on with your career a little bit, because I want to get back into that, because I think it's going to pop its head up again. As we move through and you say you deserve to be a SEAL, you it, it becomes who you are. It becomes mm-hmm. your identity. You would agree, right? Yeah. Uh, very much your identity. So much so that I want to talk about July 12th, 2000. Mm-hmm. And the reason I want to talk about that is because your identity and there was so much wrapped up into who you were and who you needed to follow and who you needed to listen to you felt regret later on. So let's talk about July 12th. I want everyone to understand the story. And then I want to talk about what happened after that was over that you still feel resonance of it to this day. Okay. So my great friend, Mike died in a parachuting accident. And we had went through butts together. We were in the same boat crew. We had kids around the same time we deployed together and he, he was one of the golden children. He was just good at everything. And we, he had just graduated from sniper school and was going to turn around after a week and go to military free fall. And it was a cherished billet. Hardly anybody got it, but Mike got it. So he's at my house on Sunday, getting ready to, sh- or he's out, I think he's at my house on Saturday getting ready to ship out because he's already missed a couple of days. And he's just like, Mark, I'm just tired. You know, just hard workup, hard deployment. Came back 10 weeks of a hard sniper course. And then I'm going back out the door for three weeks of free fall. And he's just like, I don't know if I should go or not. And I was just like, just stay home, man. You're gonna, it's going to come back up. You're going to get the billet again. And, um, you know, he's like, okay, I'll think about it. And I gave him a hug. And I was like, I'll see you next week. And we hung out a lot uh, on the weekends. And then uh, Wednesday showed up. And commanding officer calls us out on the, on the grinder and lets us know. He's like, hey, uh, we've had a fatality. My chest just starts to tighten up. Cause somehow I knew he was dead and um, they said, Hey, Mike just died. Um, parachute accident. So we're going to get the command ready. We've got to go get his wife and we have to let his wife know. Everybody's this person, the EXO comes over and says, Hey, Mark, you need to uh, go get in the car and go pick up Mike's wife. I was like, okay. And, but you can't tell him Michael's dead. And, um, my chief comes up. He's like, no, 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 I can go do it. And the XO's like, have you ever picked up Mike's wife? And he's like, well, no. It's like, yeah, she's going to know something's wrong. 
and Mark's going to do it. And he's like, Mark, I know this is hard. Just go pick her up and take her home. But you can't let her know Mike's dead. So I pick her up and, you know, she's like, hey, how are you doing? And I was like, hey, I'm good. And, you know, my heart, heart's breaking at the same time because she's smiling and, and we're driving home. It's about a 30-minute drive. And she's talking about what her and Michael and their son are going to do over the weekend. And I just have to play along with it and smile when I'm supposed to smile. And then I drop her off and I, I take off. And then a couple hours later, the commanding officer, the CMC, and the chaplain show up at her front door. She opens the door and says, what are you guys doing here? And then they broke the news to her. And... Um, they make everybody go home, and then we, we go to the house. And um, I walk through the door, and she looks at me with a look that says, You motherfucker, you drove me home knowing my husband was dead. And as I tell I still have not recovered from that. I felt like it was the ultimate betrayal to her and her son. Um, I was pissed off that they made me do this thing. Yeah, I don't think I've ever recovered from it. I No, I haven't recovered from it. When you say you walked in and you saw that look, do you think at any point that you've overthought it and and that she maybe doesn't feel that way or why does it stick so hard? Why does it resonate so hard with you that she does? Once again, you said that's who you were. You were following orders. You had mm -hmm. to. So I, I want to understand that story a little better. And I, I thought about when I read it, was it just guilt that you felt or was that really happening in front of you? Uh, probably a mixture of both a lot of guilt. And I had seen her later, and she and I talked, and she understood. But in the moment, you know, she was grieving, and, like, we spend time together. We vacation together. And I just felt like it was a betrayal. You know, I, I felt like I betrayed a, a, a family member by keeping that from her and letting her go on with the thought of, Hey, I'm getting ready to see my husband in a couple of days. And, and I understood it, but in my mind, it was, it was such a traumatic thing that I, I think I coded it in the, the wrong way as she's going to be for that look of betrayal st still holds on today as opposed to when I actually talked to her, she understood and I just apologized. But that initial betrayal, I, I still coded as a betrayal to a family member. I just, I'll just never forget the look on her face when, when it happened. Further in your, your life, you talk about, 
you know, finally being able to, to have all these emotions and stuff. Is it at that time or is it before that whenever you start putting up those pieces of armor all over you to where no one's going to see your emotions? Um, that happened when I was 15. Okay. And my grades were bad. And my dad said, Hey, if you don't pull your grades up, you're not going to be able to play basketball. And, you know, I made a choice. I didn't study enough and grades came out and I didn't make the cut bad grades. So my dad was like, you're not going to be able to play basketball. And in my mind, I was just like, Hey man, you knew this was coming. So there was no complaining. There was no begging to play basketball again. I was just like, okay, yeah, dad, I get it. I understand. And he got so angry with me that I didn't beg to play basketball so much so that I was at an age where, you know, he was so mad that he came up and spanked me in the middle of the night because he was so mad that I didn't beg to play. But in my mind, I was just like, well, yeah, this is the punishment and I get it. And I'm going to accept my punishment. I'm not going to complain about it. But what I realized is that I didn't react. And, you know, my dad could be a little bit of a bully. So when I didn't react, it was like, okay, that's a victory. So then I learned that if I'm stoic and have up this barrier that I don't show emotion, then I'm going to be left alone. I'm not going to get bullied anymore. So that was the start of building up those barriers to um, protect myself, for lack of a better term. So then it worked for me. That was a victory. And I coded it as a victory. So just mimic that again because that protects you. So over, through every instance where I should have responded, it was, nope, don't respond. Don't be emotional. Uh, kind of be robotic about it and keep it moving, which is good for the battlefield and good for what we do in special operations, but bad for, it's not healthy. And that's where that started 15. I remember the day it happened and I was just like, holy shit, I just won. This works. So just keep doing what you're doing. So let me ask you a question though on that, because you say you won and that you learned that you could hide your emotions and stuff. And, and they said, if you didn't make good enough grades, you couldn't play basketball. They came and told mm -hmm. you you didn't. And you said, yeah, I get it. The punishment. Yep. But then in your life and through buds and through sniper school, through OCS and your, your further education, you always tried to be the best. You mm -hmm. never tried to be that person that they told, oh, you can't do this because you can't cut it. Right. I feel like there was a shift there in your mind at 15. Yeah, you're stoic. Yeah, you can make it through stuff, but you're damn sure not going to be where you're even put in that position. Yeah, and I I quietly overachieve. So instead of like needing to improve on shooting at sniper school, I would, after everybody was out eating, 
I would go out to the range and just dry fire. So I figured it out. Or when I was in college, when I finished my degree through the Navy, I would just read it over and over and over. And I wanted to get an A in the class because after you flunk out, I was like, well, I don't want to squander this next chance. So I'm not going to. The failure that I experienced flunking out of college, it was just like, man, it just never sat with me, sat well with me. So I never wanted to experience that again. I was going to do everything I can to not experience that again. But that mentality of of failure really had a a profound effect on me. And I I knew that I didn't want to experience again. So I was going to do everything I could to not experience that failure again. You know, throughout your career, you, of course, went in prior to 9-11. You saw a different side of the military before they went into this constant state of 20 years of combat or a little more than 20 years of combat. When you look back and you see your career and the way it progressed and the things that you did, if 9-11 never happened and you're not thrust to be the best constantly over and over and over, is your career the same? Yeah, because I really was passionate about the job and I really found I, I was I was really happy in the in the SEAL community because the the people that are the other men that you're serving with are exceptional humans and I really just like that team atmosphere and the the constant learning and getting better and learning from your mistakes and you know once you you learn from it you get a little bit better every day and I really that really resonated with you that you're always learning something. Um, you can always get your gear just dialed in just a little bit better, or you can learn from your guys and learn how to lead them a little bit better. So I really enjoyed the interpersonal with just high achievers. And it really just kept me on my toes and lots and lots of laughter and um, cutting up in the locker room. And it was just, I was back in my element. I felt really comfortable, um, really enjoyed going to work every day, most days. And um, I just really, it was just really a great community for me. I just felt like I fit in. So let me ask you then, because a lot of guys, you know, that was at a high peak of recruitment. People were very patriotic. Does that change your military career at all then? With what you just answered to it, does 9-11 change anything? How you feel about the job? How you look at the long-term goals of the job? Does anything change for you? No. No, but it was, you know, before that, there was no, we were just practicing all the time. So then, you know, you, you want to play the game. So this kicks off and you're just like, okay, I get to, um, we're not practicing anymore. Once you walk out the door, you're getting into it. And, you know, we were a force that was just practicing all the time. We were training to the old Vietnam era battlefield. And then when it really happens, you're like, okay, this is, this is what I signed up for. You were, I was a little disappointed the first two tours when there wasn't a whole lot going on. And then September 11th kicked off and you're just like, okay, 
is it, are, am I trained well enough to go downrange? And, you know, when you're downrange, we are trained well enough and, um, you get to play in the game and you, you succeed and you really high sense of satisfaction. So if nine 11 hadn't happened, it wouldn't have changed anything. You know, you're still, you're still preparing at that same level and you work just as hard and you, you, you know, you want to be the best in your platoon or you want to be seen by your peers as, you know, a competent operator. So none of that changed. It's just now that we go down range, we're doing it for real. And you're still with the same group of guys. You're still doing the same mission and you still have that same camaraderie and you're still looking to the right and to the left. And you're like, yeah, these guys are badasses and I'm a part of it. So let's, let's get it. And that was really rewarding. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed because the same type of guy in the same environment's still there. It's just now that when, when you do your workup and your training, it's for real. You know, once you land in country in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever you're going, you know, you're going to go to work. I want to talk about the first time, because you talk about it in the book, the first time you pulled the trigger, does that change how you feel? about your career does that change who you think who you are or possible end goals in the end yes once you pull that trigger for real and my stuff was sniper work and when you're going through sniper school they tell you they when they put that first silhouette up that looks like a, a person a lot of a high percentage of the class doesn't take the first shot because you're just like okay, this is, this is real. And the instructors yell at you, he's like, take the fucking shot. And you have to take that first shot. And then like, this is, I'm, I'm training to be a sniper, but it, you know, they've, they've done studies on the first time you just see that human silhouette. We're all down on our guns. And once it's popped up, eight or 10 heads look up to make sure that we're seeing what we're seeing. You just have to like, Hey, you're, training to be a sniper you take shots you shoot people that we, we train you to do a job you go out by yourself and with your, your shooting buddy and you go out and do that line of work so when you pull the trigger for the first time it's not personal you're not like i don't think that this person has a wife or kids or it's none of that you're on the battlefield you're at work and it's not something you take personal and sadly enough it gets easier each time you go out do you think it changes you as a person do you feel yourself changing yes you that oh it's like you cut off feeling you know <laughs> you go outside the wire and you're really intense and you, you, you know, you're going into a bad spot and you have your, you have all the tools of combat and you get on your scope and you see a target and you're like, Hey, you're cleared not to shoot. And you know, you go to work and you just, for me, I just went completely numb and I just went to do the job. And then when I got back, you never, I don't think you'd ever fully recover from from doing that. 
but um, you, it definitely changes you. Does you it ever worry you? Let, let, let me let me ask that question differently. Does it ever worry you while you're doing the job? And does it ever worry you after you're done with the job and you hang up your gun belt? For me, it didn't. While you train for it and they spend millions of dollars to make sure that you're capable at the highest level and you know you're you're at work um but it it did worry me that i wouldn't be able to turn that off and reconnect with my with my kids again you know was i going to come home and still be numb and not feeling when my kid is crying or my kid needs me and for for a while when you come back you don't feel a whole lot and reconnecting is really hard so it takes it takes time but over time you slowly get back into the family routine and i would watch uh disney shows with my kids and laugh with my kids and it slowly starts to come back um and over time you kind of get back to normal and then your professional development period's over and then you start your work up again so then you have to start kind of walling yourself off again. And then when you walk out the door, it's, it's go time again. So it's just, it's this kind of vicious cycle of detach, go numb, come home, try to reintegrate, try to get back to some level of normal. But what you don't realize is you're heightened all the time. And that's what I was getting ready to ask you. You say it takes a little while, but you get back to normal. Do mm-hmm. you think you get back to normal or there's just a new normal every new normal. single time? New normal. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's why I struggled. So in that story in the book, when I'm at, on campus and I walk out the door, I'm expecting to see just an empty campus. And then when I see students everywhere and everything's a target and then, or am I safe? Is Jake safe? Oh, I don't have a gun on my on a college campus. But I went to ten, super alert. How where are the exits? Who's a threat? Why are you so close to me? And Jake saw it on my face, and I didn't even realize it until he snapped me out of it. And he's like, "Hey, Mark, are you okay?" And I, in my mind, I was thinking, "I was like, well, yeah, of course I'm okay." But I I really took a situation that was a two, and it was an eight or a nine. And I was looking for the enemy again. And that story confused me because I I really wanted to figure out when I read it, what was it about that situation? You'd been around crowds. You had done those things before. What was it about that situation in particular that, that changed everything for you? Because I walked out the door expecting one thing. You know how, let's say you pick up something you think's a Coke but it's lemonade. Lemonade's still good, but it's not what you expected. And you're like, oh God, this is not what I expected. And you react to it. So I walked into the cafeteria, empty campus. The time was the time where it's empty. And I lost track of time and I walked outside and it was just chaos out there. And I reverted back to, um, you're in danger and you're, you're in a bad place. And, and I, I, I wish I had a good answer. I can't explain it because it was so out of the ordinary. But for some reason, I was heightened, and 
you have 20 years of training of survival in combat environments. And at that moment, I stepped into a combat environment. And the reason I ask that when you bring up that story is because you have two near-death experiences that you talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. Where literally you almost die both times. And both of them are by someone else's fault. Not mm-hmm. necessarily of your own, but by someone else not paying attention, not doing what they're supposed to do, whatever it may be. Let's talk about the first time that you have a near-death experience. Because this is what was interesting to me about your story, especially when you bring up like the college where you're heightened and everyone's in danger. You've been in situations multiple times, probably hundreds of times where you're in real danger, but Mm -hmm. it was that one at the end at transition. There's not really a threat out there, but it thrust you right back into it. Mm -hmm. When you're doing your operations and stuff, you violence is on your terms, right? You're going into a target and you know, when you go into it, you are going to be the catalyst of what's happening on target for the most part. You would say the enemy gets a say though. The enemy gets a say, but you're going in and you breach that door and the violence is on your terms. You know, you're, you're going into a house or you're going on target. You know, something's probably going to happen, but our, our guys are going to initiate it. So it puts you in a different mind space or head space as opposed to the violence being done to you unprepared. And for some reason I, I coded it as this is, this is being done to me. I'm not prepared. I didn't have any guns. I was in, on a college campus. I couldn't properly defend myself to the violence that I perceived that was coming at me and it was, and I was completely out of control. And that's a, that's a completely different uh, headspace to be in. Absolutely. Because on the opposite end of that spectrum, and we're talking about both times that you had a near death experience, Mm -hmm. you revert back to your training the second time faster than the first time, but you revert back to your training and you go into almost a robotic state to do Mm -hmm. it. And there was something different about that. Let's talk about your two near-death experiences, or we can just talk about one of them, whatever you feel comfortable with. But I want to know about them and what you learned from them. So the first one, it took me a while because it was my first, it was my first, no shit, you're, you're not coming back. And we were doing fast roping on the strong Texan, and we were with HS2, the Hilo Squadron, HS2, and I was in aircraft number five, I think it was. Yeah, number five. And we're doing our crawl, walk, run. And it was my first, like, we're doing a visit board search and seizure where we go in and we take over the ship. And pilot comes in. is like, yeah, I'm the pilot today, and I'm the best pilot in the squadron, and I'm going to get you guys on target. Like, okay. Did he um, really say that to you? That oh, was yeah. a real oh, yeah. statement. Yeah, yep. Okay. I was like, all right, well, Mavericks, Mavericks in the house, you know? So, um, so we, we do the profile and broad daylight. Fantastic. I was like, okay, do my first practice op and six, six hours, eight hours from now, we're going to do it again. And the sea state starts to pick up and there are obstacles. We'll call them their cranes or booms. And it was a really tough platform. It was a really small platform. 
and we're coming in and the pilot you can tell he's scared because the sea state's really high and it was almost to the point where it was unsafe to do it but we were just under the threshold so the ship is the platform's just doing this the the ship's doing five knots so you know he's got to keep us over the platform but he's got to also match the speed there's a lot of moving parts right but he was so nervous getting us down so eight of us are in the second one one two three four five six go down todd goes down and then i'm going down last todd hits the deck and the way it was related to me the the crew chief was like hey we have two more the pilot thought he said no more and todd hits the deck and then all of a sudden i'm on the fast rope going as fast as i can and then all of a sudden the helicopter's moving out to sea and i was like what the hell's going on with that and so then i realized like he doesn't know i'm on the on the line so i put my brakes on and you know they i had like six or eight inches of of fast rope left so i put the brakes on stop at the very end and you know they teach you how to climb up fast ropes and buds so all i needed to do was get high enough hook my feet in and i was going to be fine but something happened that made the helo they caused a whip in the line and the whip's coming down and i'm looking up and i'm like shit and i know it's coming snaps me right off and i go between 60 and 100 feet into the water and the first thing i think is like why am i all wet you know i'm supposed to be on the deck of a ship why am i in the water so there's this moment of confusion and then it's like holy shit i'm in the water and the ship's going north but the current's pushing south and the waves are pretty high so i'm like shit so i go to turn on my strobe light and i hear that flooded out didn't work and the waves are crashing and i'm like i can't face the ship anymore because like the salt water's i'm sucking down a bunch of salt water so i have to turn around and i just keep getting pushed out to sea and um i start thrashing around a little bit and i was like wait a second we're off the of catalina island and the safety brief was like hey this is a great white breeding ground and it's breeding season so all of a sudden I was like wait a second great whites breeding ground feeding time so I'm like, okay <laughs> i gotta see with gotta, a bunch of yeah. horny sharks yeah so i gotta <laughs> and i'm a big you know i'm a big meal so so i have to stop thrashing around because I'm food. So then I have to settle down and say, okay, okay, what's the situation right now? Okay, you're in the water, strong Texans going this way, they're getting pushed out to sea, your strobe lights flooded, and you're taking on water because you have your both weapon system, body armor, heavy boots, and I'm starting to flood. So I'm like, okay, pull your, your UDT life jacket, fill it up, well, it's rated for somebody who's 5'8", 160 to 180 pounds. 6'2", with all my stuff, 240 40 pounds, maybe 250. The thing's not rated for me to stay afloat. So it's pumped up, but I'm so heavy that I'm still sinking. So I have to tread water and I turn on my strobe. Uh, I had a, a secondary light, so I turn that secondary light on, but I'm just like, Yep, I'm not gonna make it. 
and I'm trying to get my bearings and it's like, okay, if I ditch all this stuff, put on my, my swim fins, I can swim to Catalina Island or I can swim to San Clemente, you know, but I got to figure this thing out. But the, the helicopter did what's called a figure eight. And so they, they realize I'm gone and they do this figure eight and I'm just on the south side of the figure eight. So they can't even see me. And the worst sound I've ever heard was that helicopter flying away. In the middle ocean, I'm dark. And so I'm just like, well, I thought of my kid. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to make it home. But I'm going to put my, my fins on and I'm going to start swimming. And one of the guys, we had this experimental night vision sniper scope. So he puts on the scope and they hop on the helicopter and they come try to look for me again. And he just happens to say, hey, I see something out there. And it was that little flashlight. Wasn't even an LED, it was just an old school light. So he sees me out in the distance and they come and pick me up. And the safety swimmer, they have, the, they have a, uh, a script that they, hey, calm down, are you fine? And so he, he comes in the water, jumps in, is like, all right, calm down. We're here to rescue you. And I was like, hey, man, I'm calm. Can you just get me up in the helicopter? And no kidding, he's just like, oh, well, yeah, yeah, man, let's get you up. This is a call, one of the calmest conversations we ever had. He puts the ring on me and, you know, I get rescued. But, you know, it was, it took, I had the oh shit moment and it lasted a little bit longer than I wanted it to. But then I, I settled down. Even though I was pretty confident I was not going to make it home, I still didn't give up. I was going to I was going to swim until I just couldn't make it anymore. But um, so yeah, so that was my first near death, and water was fifty two degrees. I was getting hypothermia, so I didn't have a whole lot of time left. Dumb luck saved me. Do you think that thinking that you weren't going to make it? Do you think that made you calm at any point? It did. Strangely enough, it did. I was just like, well, shit. It's not going to help panicking. Sharks are all over the place. Ship's not coming back. Um, you swam all those miles for a reason. So get your fins on and hope you don't, you're not swimming north and you're either going east or west to Catalina Island or San Clemente. Um, so I had options. I just, they weren't, none of, none of the options were good. Right. And I didn't know which direction I was going. I was just going to start swimming. And then the helicopter came back. But uh, I knew I knew I wasn't going to make it. But with that knowledge, I still was going to I wasn't just going to sit out there and drown. I was going to swim and make it somewhere. In your career in this time period, when you've had this near death experience, you've been to combat, you've done these things. Where are we at with your father getting sick? He hadn't gotten sick yet. Okay. So he got sick in 2003. Okay. Um, and he was cutting the grass one day, slipped and um, thought he pulled a muscle. And it's like his groin, thought he pulled his groin muscle. And so he goes to the doc and he's 51, 50 or 51. Doc's like, I'll take some Motrin, come back in a month, see how you're doing. Well, he just, it's not getting any better. So he, um, Adam Motrin, 
and goes back to the doc and says, hey, doc, I'm just not, I'm just not getting any better. This is just a pulled muscle. It should be getting better. So they say, all right, Sergeant Green, we're going to give you an x-ray. Give him an x-ray, and he, we live about 15 minutes from the hospital. So by the time he got his films taken to the time he got home 15, 20 minutes later, he had five messages on his phone, and they said, hey, uh, you're going to have to come right back. So that at that point, he knew something was wrong. So he, they get back, and, and uh, he had a mass on his hip. So what happened when he slipped, he actually fractured his hip. And the, so they had surmised that he had, he, he fractured his hip when he was 15. And this cancer is so slow growing that, you know, it took 35 years for it to get to the point where it fractured his hip. So what he thought was just a groin injury was a hip fracture, and that cancer was just leaking out into his body. And it's called chondrosarcoma. And there's about, back then it was about 1,000 cases per year. It was so rare that they only treated it regionally. Like North region happened to include Ohio. So we got him to a specialist, and they let him know that, hey, you have a really rare form of bone cancer. And it's usually pretty terminal, but we think we can go in there and get it out, replace your hip and get you on your way. So we go to the medical center and the doctor's pretty confident and they wheel him back and we expect him to get a new hip in 48 hours. And um, doctor comes out 30 minutes later and you just know something's wrong. So he comes out and said, hey, we, we got inside and cancer's everywhere. It's down his leg, into his bladder. So we're going to have to amputate from the hip. And my mom was in no condition to make a decision. So I asked the doc one, I was like, hey, doc, I get it. I just have one, one question. And I said, is this going to save my dad's life? And he said, yes. I was like, okay, take the leg. So I knew that him going in, he thought he was just going to recover with new hip. You know, not a whole lot different. But I went, do you remember that movie Poltergeist? Mm-hmm. Remember when the hallway elongated to, like, it seemed like it was a mile long? That's in quite a few movies, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, but that's the first time I'd, I'd seen it. And so the hallway to my dad's recovery room may have been 30 feet. I knew what I was getting ready to see. So that hallway, looked it felt like I was walking for an hour to get to that room. And I saw him, and other than my grandfather, my dad was the biggest person in my whole life. And when I walked into that room and he didn't have his leg, he looked like an infant. For some reason, he looks so much smaller, and he's coming out of uh, anesthesia, wearing off, and he looks at me. The first person he sees, and he smiles, he's like, "Hey, buddy, how are you doing?" And heart heart broken. And I was like, "When he wakes up, he's not going to have his leg, and he's going to know that I made the decision to take his leg." Hardest decision I've ever made, but you know, it was very binary. It was just like, okay, 
I've identified the, what's going on. Don't feel any emotion about it. Make a decision, and we're going to figure it out from there. And that's how I approached it. But still, man, when you see your dad and you made a decision to take his leg, his life's never going to be the same. You know, it's uh, it was an awful day. But the silver lining behind that, as I was, I was teaching the sniper course, the sniper course happened to be in Indiana, two-hour drive from my dad's house. So as he's recovering, I get to go hang out with my dad on the weekends and made a really conscious decision. Do I hold this animosity that, you know, the headbutt that my, my dad and I had, or do I take this opportunity and say, you know what? Everybody makes mistakes. Your dad's dying. Do you hold on to this or do you let it go and just spend time with your dad? And I was just like, I'm just going to spend time with my pop. And best couple months of his life, of, of our time together. And, you know, he got the diagnosis that the cancer had come back. And once the doctor said the cancer comes back, we're not even going to touch him because it's, it's going to take his life. So as he's slowly dying, um, when I was a kid, his father was a heroin addict. And he watched, the whole family watched my grandfather go through withdrawal. And I was the type of kid who, curious enough to where if somebody said, hey, try this, I'd be like, yeah, I'll try that. So my dad was just like, boy, if you ever do drugs, I will kill you myself. And he hands, and I think I was like nine or 10 or something like that. And he hands me a bullet. I was like, I'm going to shoot you with this bullet right here. And I take the bullet and then turn it over and look at it. And my name was engraved in it. <laughs> so, you know, I was in, in a, like Snoop Dogg was big. Cypress Hill was big. You know, weed, weed, weed in the 80s and 90s. I wouldn't touch the stuff because I touched that stuff. I got a bullet with my name on it, literally, right? So I'm like, man, I'm not touching that shit. So I, I'm hanging out with my dad, and uh, he's in a pretty good mood. He's like, hey, son. I was like, yeah, Pop, what's up? And he looks around. He's like, I never even owned a gun. And I was like, you son of a bitch. I knew you didn't own a gun. But that was it was so ingrained that... Like my dad's gonna shoot my dad's gonna shoot me with them. And uh he's just like, well, yeah. He definitely put time it. into that prank because he put your name <laughs> on it. But here's my question. All that comes to this, because we talked about your grandfather and we said we would get back into it with your father later on. Mm -hmm. When he when he passes and you've mm -hmm. spent this time with him, the by your own words, the greatest time of your relationship with him. Mm -hmm. Do you think you know him? Yes. Yeah. And I appreciated him because I had had my own children and I was going through my own parenting stuff and the things that he was trying to convey, I understood because now I was a parent and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I've made some mistakes as a parent and looking at you know, he got married at 18, had his first kid at 19, second kid at 21. 
he had no idea what he was doing. But he was a great father. You know, he was always around. He was always a little grumpy, but but he was a great dad. So then I got to know him, and then I got to appreciate what he was trying to convey with his children because you want them to thrive after you're gone as a parent. And that's really, that's in his own way of stumbling through it, he really just wanted his kids to be okay. And he was very successful in that. And But the level of appreciation that I gained through that time of burying the hatchet and just hanging out with your dad and asking questions and him telling the same stories he told my whole life. But each time he told it, I was just like, this is the last time I'm going to hear it. And so appreciate it. And throughout the time he was dying, the man never complained one time. I never heard him complain. And uh, I was like, hey, you know, he's a tough bastard. And um, I almost vowed to not complain ever again after that. Because what he was going through paled in comparison to what, you know, once you know you're dying and you just have to wait for it, you know, that's, and to never complain about it. I was just like, you know, I'm a badass dad. And I really got to enjoy the time with them with no expectations. It was just two dudes hanging out, watching football. He loved the Cleveland Browns. So we'd watch the Browns game or just whatever. It was just sacred time at that point because it was very limited and he and I knew it. So everything that you've seen up to this point, cause this is 2003, I think it traveled into 2004 though, right? Before he passed or was it 2003 when he passed? He, he died in June, two days before his birthday in 2003. Okay. So 2003, you've, you've been in the military for quite a while now. You've, you've done all these things. You've seen death. You've seen all these things. Does it change? Because as we talked about when you were a sniper, when you pull that trigger, you kind of shut down, you start changing mm -hmm. who you are. Now that your father has passed and you spent all this time with him and you watched him know that death was coming, Mm -hmm. Does it change your outlook on death? Yes, but in in ways that, like when we're going on target, or you're <clears throat> you're on your way, or you're in a in a vehicle, it was just you resolved yourself to the fact that this could be the last time I go out. You know, my alarm clock in in Iraq was a bomb going off every morning. That was my alarm clock. Seems right. I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so every time you go out, just like okay, this and, you, and this that numbness comes back. You're like, well, I hope I don't die, but it's a really it's a real possibility. Okay, and let me let me kind of change the question a little bit because what I was really going for with that. Let's take Mike and let's take your father as an example. Mm -hmm. Your father knew it was coming. He saw it coming. You saw, just like you said just now, for someone to sit there and know that this is coming. They don't mm -hmm. know when, but they know for sure it's coming. Yep. And then you take Mike. That was completely unexpected. Mm -hmm. Completely. So no matter if you know, whether you don't know, it's coming. So mm -hmm. I wonder 
how do you write that in your brain? Because no matter which way you look at it, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But does it make you, I, I don't know if the word is comfort, take comfort in it, but does it change the way you look like either way, whether I know or whether I don't know, this is going to happen. Yeah. So it, it, and it really just comes down to how am I going to stay connected with loved ones? Mainly my kids, you know, Mike didn't have a chance to say goodbye to his son, you know, and it happened when he was so young, he probably didn't remember his father at all. So I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay connected. I'm going to, make an effort because they're experiencing death in that way. It's like, it's, it's precious. This time is precious and valuable. And I want to make connections and keep connections. It's a lot more important to me um, after seeing, after experiencing those two events that, you know, just do everything you can to stay connected and be available because, you know, it's, it's coming. Like you said, it's on its way. I just don't know when. So that's what really made me really refocus on um, staying connected with mostly those mainly my kids because experiencing, putting myself in, in Mike's son's shoes as not even two years old to now my kids, I, I want them to remember me and you know, to, for them to be fond memories. And it's like, oh, dad made some mistakes, but, you know, that dude was always around and he was always easy with a smile and hugs his kids too much and tells bad jokes and laughs at his own jokes. But we have great memories and times together that I don't, I would not have put the effort into had I not experienced those two events. Before I bring in the last two people that were, I think, important in your career, we've talked about your your children or necessarily your life. I want to know the biggest thing you took away from your grandfather and the biggest thing you took away from your father. That their presence, and even though it was in the periphery or was in the background, you know, those those two men were so loving and stabilizing in their own way. My grandfather, I didn't realize till much later, but looking back on it, it like he was just all about his, his grandkids. And then in my dad's own way, he was all about his kids. You know, he, we were his legacy and, um, they made some mistakes, but what I gained from it was even though they made mistakes, the effort was there. They were reliable and there was all, they were always around to provide some guidance or punishment as, as kids earn sometimes. Then they taught me to just be really consistent, you know, um, do things that are hard even if you don't want to. Because, you know, I don't. I always want to get up and work out or I always didn't want to go to work and go to the range or I don't always want to go to sporting events for my kids. I was tired, but it was so important for them to know that I was, I I see them and I hear them and how valuable they are. Cause I knew my grandfather valued 
us kids. And I didn't quite understand it being so young. And even with my dad, I didn't quite understand what he was going through because, you know, that group didn't share with adult stuff with kids. But looking back, he was all the guy was always around. You know, he was always a role model. He was always a huge cheerleader. You know, my dad never missed a game. And so with my kids, I, if it was in my power, I'd never missed a game. I never missed a practice. Let's talk about you becoming an officer, USC. I kind of want to tie those two in together. Officer is nearing the end of your career. And the what I want to use about the officer part of your career was you really learned how to meld with everyone around you. You had a mm-hmm. chief that was a skinhead in the past. There could have been lots of problems, but you figured out everyone's got to work together. Everyone's got to pass. And I think that transferred over as much as you think that it didn't when you got out because you looked at every single opportunity that came to you as a gift. Mm-hmm. You, you really did. And talking about Bill, talking about Al, these guys that that made this life for you happen after mm-hmm. – you get out of the military. What was it about being an officer that changed, because I felt from the book, changed your complete outlook on life, the way you approached everything? Yeah, so I like I genuinely cared about the people who I was leading. At OCS, at all of the platoons I did, I just genuinely cared about the people I was in charge of and I wanted to take as much off of their plate so they could just do their jobs at, at the highest level they could and be it Patty or Mikey or whoever or the chief. Um, I genuinely cared about the guys that I was leading and I, I let them just do what they did best. And, you know, and, all of my platoons, I was not the smartest guy around. And I learned, I was open to learning from everybody. I was really just a student of the people around me. So um, I really just looked for the best in everybody. And I genuinely cared about everybody. And I got great results from that. And this is what I naturally do. It's not that it's something I have to work at. Now, because I cared about them, didn't mean I liked all of them. But they were my, they were, if they were problem children, they were my problem children. And hopefully the guys who I didn't get along with, I hope they don't know that it, they bugged the shit out of me. But, but here's the question to that. When I say that you kind of changed how you were as an enlisted guy, mm-hmm. you kept a list of perceived slights. When people yeah. did stuff, you were like, now you're on the list, motherfucker. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. As an officer, you didn't do that. And I'm trying no. to figure out at what point of your life or what happened in your life or what that thing was that changed that perception of how you approached people, of how you approached work, and how you approached your life in general. Because would you agree it's 180 in the other direction? Yeah, I think it was Michael's death was a big one. And having kids of my own was the second biggest one. And, you know, you only have one chance to because experiencing the birth of my kids and the death of a, a great friend, it really just, 
it changed my perspective on I was just kind of flipping about stuff. Yeah, motherfucker, you're on the list. But then what? You know, so then Mike died. I had to recover from that. And then I had my own kids. And I was like, all right, that that was good for that phase of your life. You're still in your early to mid twenties. That's not how I want to do things now that I've seen the world um, and experienced loss. And I, I naturally do this, but uh, there's always a silver lining. And I find the silver lining almost first. And after experiencing those deaths, it was everybody became valuable. And the time with those people came, became very valuable. And I got very invested in people. And I hope that answers it, but the, the, I think so. yeah, the investment in people really. Here's where it kind of differs for me, where, where my questions are, as you go through the officer phase, you've done your whole career. You, we've talked a lot about your kids. We haven't talked a lot about your ex-wife. We talked before the show that we would talk a little bit about it. I know it's a mm-hmm. deeply personal issue with you. What I want to talk about though, is you have this person that for 20 years of your career, as many years as they're around, they support you. They have children with you. They hold down the home front while you're gone. Then when you get to the end and you have this ability because of Bill and Al to go out to California, start this whole new life, take care of your family wonderfully, have a house, private school, all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. That person says, absolutely not. I won't yeah. do it. So mm-hmm. you start that point of your of your life and go, okay, well, I'm going to try it out anyway. Maybe I can drag them behind me. Mm-hmm. And I told you I wanted to ask about this. What I don't understand is they support through all of that stuff, all of that time separated away, all of these horrible things that you've seen, what you've had to do, all of these things. And the thing that breaks the camel's back is, I want to move out to California. I want to do this. I want to provide for my family and I want to start this new life after it's over. Mm-hmm. They even made sure that there would be a job out there for her, everything. Yep. I'm trying to understand why was that what broke the camel's back? I don't know. I think it was to gain or some level of control because, you know, there was no say in where the Navy sent us. You know, you're, at, you're kind of at the whims of the Navy. You can kind of, you can manage it a little bit, but 20 years of that is hard for anybody. And I think it was just the one more mission or one more op that she was just like, yeah, I can't, I can't follow you on this one. Honestly, I, and we were obviously two different perspectives on this. I took it as a family decision. You know, I can still take care of the family. They can still put food on the table. It's in a different location than is ideal, but it's not a, it's not bad. It's just different. And I, I, I really think it was just regain control in some way. And it was just one mission too many. But I don't, I don't know for sure. We, we never discussed it, but knowing her as I with her for 25 years, I, I, I can kind of put the pieces together. And I, I, I would say 90% of the, the, it was those two things. It was one mission too many, 
and I was making a family decision, and I think she was making an individual decision. And um, once I got the the paperwork of saying, hey, we're not going to be able to reconcile. And I remember looking at the, the, the initial decree, and it said, this can't be reconciled. That barrier went up, and it just became all business. I cut it off, and I was like, okay. Got the paperwork, signed it, put it back in the mail the same day. And it was like, once I saw that it couldn't, she, she couldn't reconcile or there was no change in her mind, it just became very binary and very business. Maybe you can't speak for her, but what the sense that I got from the book was she was almost angry at you when it was over. Yeah. And, and I yeah. talk about like the house, like you buy a house, 10 houses down now mm-hmm. in all, I will agree in, in anybody you would ask, <laughs> it's a strange thing. I, right, I, right. I have to tend to agree. It's, it's a yes. little bit of a strange thing. I understand. Like you say, I understand the thought behind it. Mm-hmm. The kids are very easily go back and forth, but when the marriage is over living 10 houses away, maybe not the ideal space. But it almost seems as you wrote it in the book and as you talk about you and her's relationship, which is a very short part of the book, mm-hmm. it almost seems like she's angry about you. Like it will be anything just to show you that she's angry with you. And so I almost wonder when you say, I never found out what it was that did it. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that would be because I ask a lot of questions in life. Yeah. I feel like that would be the first question I would ask. Like, okay, all of this has happened. We've been through all of this all these years. What is it about this thing that, that ended it? And it almost seems like you were adversaries at the end. Yeah, and I don't have a good answer because I don't know. It was never like articulated in a way that I could understand that. And I just had to deduce that it was when mission too many but yeah there were there was a lot of anger with almost me being successful because so she had a this mosaic beautiful mosaic of what life was going to be like after the military i was going to be a teacher i was going to work at rotc we were going to have the life that she wanted after the navy and I think that that control or that mosaic or that picture in her mind was shattered one more time. And it was just like, no, I'm going to, this is the life that I have planned for us and you're going to do it. And I was like, well, I get that, but life says this is the best option for us as a family. And with the salary and the job position available to her, the private school for a year, and if I stayed at USC for two years, then the kids go to USC for free. $300,000 education for four years. Times four kids. Bucks. Yeah, times the times three, because Riley was already, she used my GI Bill, so she was already, school's already paid for, for her, but for the other three, she exhausted my GI Bill, so I we were going to come out of pocket. I hadn't gotten my 100% disability at the time. 
So it was like, okay. In my logical mind, it was like, okay, this makes sense. Everybody's taken care of. The future's taken care of. Financially, we're good. So when I got that uh, offer, I went back and was like, you're not going to believe this. This is going to be great. She's like, no, I'm good. So I called Bill back and said, hey, Bill, wife's not buying it. Um, so he said, well, how about Were this? you angry? I got to ask if you were angry. Yeah, I was angry and confused. It, it didn't make sense to me. It's like, well, we're just going to be doing – life is going to be better with for what I thought was for everybody during this transition if – we make this move out here. Financially, we're going to be fine. Um, we're going to figure out, we're going to figure this thing out. But as far as keeping the family together and keeping them thriving, in my mind, it was just like, yeah, it's a no brainer. So I called Bill and said, hey, Bill, Gina's not going for it. So Bill's in commercial real estate. And he's like, how about this? How about Gina comes out, picks out a house anywhere in LA? at the beach, in the valley, wherever she wants to live. I give you a low interest loan. You stay out here for five years, the house is yours. And I was like, Gina, you're not gonna believe this shit. And presented it and she's like, no, I'm good. I'm like, okay, something good's gonna happen out here. And I'm unemployed as of right now. And I can be working in two, two weeks. Something good's gonna come out of this and I'm going to take this opportunity. Um, I want you to come with me. I want all the kids to come with me. But if you're choosing to not come with me, then I'm out of options. And there weren't very many good options. But I I went into it knowing it was temporary because there was a lot more stability back there. But I still needed to keep food on the table. I still needed to take care of everybody. So in my mind, it was all logic and very, I thought it was thought out. People out here want to take care of me for whatever reason. And uh, I really thought that at the end of it, it would take some adjustment. I thought we could really be happy out, out in L.A. But she said, nope, I'm going to stay here. And I was like, okay. So I negotiated two weeks in L.A. and then two weeks in Virginia. And they accommodated me on that. And and then she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to go ahead and file for divorce. And then once it was in my hand that, hey, Here's a divorce decree and separation agreement. I'm like, okay, well, we're done. So I, I'm not going to put any more effort towards this anymore. It's, it's done. But I still need to put effort towards my kids. Um, so I, I just shifted all the focus I had on taking care of my kids. So when I moved 10 houses down, it was, hey, I want the kids to be able to come to the house. I want the kids to be able to do this. I want the kids to do this. And that's what it all became. It all became kid focus because that relationship was done she wasn't coming back so all i could do was focus on on my kids and be the best dad that i could to them so this kind of all circles back around to everything that we've kind of talked about tonight so you get out you do these transition and like you said transition is temporary it took you six years to transition full mm -hmm. and yeah. there were breakdowns like we talked about at Home Depot in front of your kids mm -hmm. where you finally start to fill stuff. There's 
not I, I'm not going to say a suicide attempt, but there was definite ideation there mm-hmm. that was going on where you call a friend over and you just can't seem to grieve and you just can't seem to put that past in the past and move on no matter how good it is. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering in the book where we talk about transitioning, where you're helping people realize that veterans, law enforcement that are getting away from those careers. I'm wondering at what point does everything feel like it's coming together? Because for the longest time in the book, you just continue to say, yeah, my job is great, but this sucks. This mm-hmm. is great, but this sucks. And there's never any median space between it. It's either at the top of the mountain or at the bottom of the valley. Talk to us about how people can work through that because you did for six years to get mm-hmm. through it. So I, I knew it was like, even when I was in buds, I, I realized that I had a deficiency. So I just asked for help. And I reached out to Bill and my network at USC. I was on a campus that was starting to recognize PTS and stuff. And I was like, do we have counseling or do we have avenues where I can figure this out because I'm, I'm not equipped to do it on my own and I need help. And do you know somebody? Oh yeah, we have this program here. Try this out. Okay. I tried that. Didn't work. What else you got? Um, until I finally just, I just made myself vulnerable and said, look, I need help. I don't know how to figure this thing out. And once I put it out that I needed help, people just came out of the woodworks and say, Hey, I need, heard you need help. Like who the hell are you? Well, I know somebody, you know, and there's this program that we're starting and it's a pilot. It's to help traumatic brain injuries and possibly PTS and not sleeping anxiety. Want to try it? Yes. And it just, that one path would lead to other paths for other people who are waiting for the help. I was like, Hey, I heard you tried this. Did it work a little bit, but not quite. Well, here, let's try this. And all of a sudden just saying yes and letting people know that you need help and not like you're, your muscles to do things on your own have atrophied, right? Because in the military, you do something, you're always with somebody, always doing something as a team, even as a sniper pair, you're still not doing it alone. So those muscles to do it, hey, I'm going to go ahead and solve this problem on my own. Those muscles are tiny and barely visible. But what you are good at is leveraging your team or relying on your team to help you solve that problem. So just because you're transitioning out doesn't mean you're alone. Uh, Your team's just going to look different and you might have to seek that team out and you might have to either swallow your pride or come to the grips like, Hey, what I'm doing is not working. Let me do some research and say, Hey, headstrong supports veterans or, this nonprofit supports or where I am offers this service and just go get the help until you build those solitary, those muscles that have actually back up. And then you're, you know, you're still relying on 
your network, but it's just nudges now as opposed to big course corrections. But here's the interesting thing to me, and, and this is the million dollar question of the book, and this is what everything we've talked about tonight culminates into. We've talked about it the entire conversation. In Buds, when you weren't cutting it, you went to someone and you asked for help. In sniper school, you went and asked for help. OCS, all of these things, even when you took over command, you had your troops, your chiefs, all of that help you. And then you get out and fuck all of it away and stop asking for help. And I'm wondering, because this happens to a lot of people, whether it be military, law enforcement, first responders, whatever it may be, they forget who they are when they leave. And I think that's exactly what you did for about five years into your transition. And I'm trying to understand why that happened. You always ask for help, but it took you forever to do it on the outside. No, uh-uh. no, I asked for help almost right away. Well, here's what I mean by that. When you start looking for reasons to make you feel like you've succeeded, there's a, there is a definite change. You have to agree when, like we said, you talked about, well, this was great, but this was sucking. This was great. There was a point where everything kind of shifted in together and you're like, well, this isn't working. Let me ask for help so I can understand me. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to understand why it took so long to get to that where you were like, I'm just trying to understand me. I'm just trying to get better because I think a ton of people go through that. I think that I can look back and, and say, well, you're do it yourself. Muscles of atrophied, right? Now I can see that. But at the, as you're in it, you're like, no, I, I, I got this. I can, I can figure this out on my own. And finally, it was just going through that for so long, doing it myself wasn't working. But every time I asked for help, it was available. So finally, I was like, well, this is what I've been doing is not working. Okay. And when you were in, in the military and you were, things weren't working. Exactly. You'd ask for help and that worked. Okay, so I'm tired of getting my ass kicked by myself. Try that asking thing again. And so I did because that's what I was good at. I was good at identifying the problem and realizing that I can get by on my own, but I can get by a lot better if I ask for help. So finally, I, I got to that point to where I was just like, yeah, this isn't working. Look, looking at taking my own life. So it was it was at that moment to where I went to a point where I was just like, man, I just, I feel like I'm a burden. And people in my life, maybe they'd be better off if I wasn't this much of a burden. And my friend came over and she was just like, no, you're wrong. You're valuable. We all love you. Your kids need you. And in my mind, I was like, I know my kids need me. But it was just that very quick moment of maybe things would be better if, if not. And, then, and when she came over and looked at me and just like gave me a hug, and it's like, no, you're good. And I was just like, you're right. I, I'm uh, okay. I'm good. And 
what I'm doing is not working. So just go do what you're good at and ask for help. And once I came to that conclusion and started asking for help, just the floodgates of help opened up and and it was a slower process than I thought, but it was, I was incrementally getting better. And as long as I was getting better, even just a little bit, then I was okay. And I realized that, but I think I needed to hit that, not even rock bottom, but to the point where it's just like, yeah, this isn't working, man. Just go with what worked for 20 years. And that's what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Because we're talking uh, three, four years into your transition before that mm-hmm. happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so that that's my whole thing and what you just said. I think that was rock bottom, though. It might not have been the worst it could be, but it definitely for you was rock bottom. When you're thinking yeah. about taking your own life, that's rock bottom. Yeah, because I was just not doing good at any one thing you know exactly yeah so and what what do seals do and they're not doing they just pile one more thing on so then i was like oh i'm gonna go to grad school now idiot so then that was one other thing i wasn't doing great at and finally i'm just like just take some of this stuff off your plate well, and that was my whole point, and and that's what I think. Definitely, one of the best parts of the book was when you finally realized when you focused on you, like you did in Buds, like you mm-hmm. did in Sniper School. When you said, "How do I get better as me as mm-hmm. a person?" Now it's completely different what you were get, making better about yourself. But when you finally went back to that old mark and said, "How do I make myself better? How do I get better at this?" that's when everything changed. And that's what was so fascinating to me that it took you three, four years into this retirement before you go, shit, this has worked my entire life, my entire Mm. career. It went away. And I really worried. That's what a lot of people leaving these high stress jobs, these high stress careers, when they get done, they forget what made them good about it. And all they focus on is I'm not great at this. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. And they forget, yeah. all I got to do is ask, and someone will teach me how to be great in this. Yeah. And not only will they teach you, most of the time they're happy to do it. But once I finally realized that, one, I wasn't a burden and do what you've done your whole life to succeed, and then all of a sudden help was everywhere. It, it hadn't changed. It's just I finally saw it again. Because, like you said, I got back to, I got back to the basics, really, and um, best decision ever. So, with all of this, this career, this book, what you're doing now, what possibly could be next for you? You know, I was talking with Andy Stump tonight, and he asked me the same thing. Well, I think we should point out Andy Stump wasn't just a guy you were talking to. He was your classmate along with Jack Carr when you were in uh-huh. Bud. So you come from a very famous class. So when you throw yes. that out the way you did, well, I was talking to him. There's a reason for it because you guys go way back. Way back. Yeah. So he asked me the same thing. And I, I don't know, but I didn't know I was going to be writing a book a year ago. I had no idea. I thought I was somebody to asked me, one of the students asked me at USC, they're like, so what's next, Mark? I was like, I don't know. And then Bobby came up and was like, all right, I've had enough of you. You're writing a book. I was like, okay. So the next progression now looks like 
book's going to help some people and maybe you develop a curriculum. Maybe you do your own podcast. Maybe I do some public speaking and just kind of get the word out that transitions are happening all the time. And let's, let's walk through this transition together and take my lessons learned. So you're not taking three years and, and suicidal ideations or, and get you back to healthy as soon as we can. So however, whatever that looks like, if it's starting my own channel or directing people to different modalities of, of help, you know, I don't know what that looks like, but um, I also said in the book that I just say yes to just about everything. So I'm just going to say yes to whatever happens. You, you sent the invite for the podcast. I'm like, I don't know who this is, but yes. Well, I'm glad you did say that. Yeah, I am could too. Have been, and could have been way worse if you said. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to start. This would have been a very one-sided show. <laughs> well, it, it it's so amazing to hear. And, and like I said, man, I you know this book, I I just cannot say, like I said in the beginning, I cannot say enough good things about it to see someone just bear it all out there on the line and let people know this shit is difficult. You, mm -hmm. you work your whole life. And I think a lot of people get to the end of their career and they go, it's going to be easy from here. They're just getting started. Yeah. And I think I would be doing everybody a disservice if I wasn't as open and honest and vulnerable and say, Hey, here's exactly what happened. Good, bad, and ugly. And if, if I, if I didn't approach it that way, I, I, I wouldn't be authentic, you know, and, um, I think people would see through it right away. It's like, oh, this is kind of a bullshit story. It's like, nope, this is a struggle, but I had, I had some, a lot of great, but then I struggled a lot. I don't want to lose anybody else. I don't want to read about another teammate of mine who was at the pinnacle of his career commanding officer for a very short time and then took his own life. I'm like, what the hell just happened? And I, I, I'm really dedicated to giving back to the community in this way. And right now this is the best way I, I felt I could do it. I had to be pushed into it, but now that I'm here, I really want to do a lot of good for people I care about. People I know and don't know, I just want to get the word out and hopefully it has um, a really positive impact on it. And, you know, your feedback was really, I was just like, wow, thank you so much for that feedback. Because you don't know how things are going to resonate. And the feedback I'm getting is just, it's been fantastic. So thank you. Like I said, I, I think people need to go see it. Let's talk about when the book comes out where people can find you, where they can find the book and where they can learn a little more about your story. So we are, the website is themarkgreen.com and you can pre-order the book. The pre-order stops on January 7th, Kindle version um, and hardcover comes out on Amazon on January 22nd. And I'm on social media. We consolidated. So everything is themarkgreen.com on Instagram, Facebook, um, and I'm still Mark Green on LinkedIn. 
And the book's going to be available on all platforms. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. You can order through the website, and we're going to send it directly to you. So anywhere books are available, you can get Unsealed. I want to ask, are, if people were to purchase the book, is there a way to get it personalized from you? Is there something set up in that vein, or is that going to come later on? So we did the initial first 100 purchasers to get a signed copy. But I really, I'm so grateful that I'm thinking about doing a tour like I live in Ohio, so anybody who bought the book in Ohio, I just want to set something up as like, hey, I'm I want to I'm so grateful that I want to I want to sign your copy of the book. I have friends in Indiana. Uh, I go out to L.A. all the time, and I really just want people to let them know how grateful I am, and I'm willing to travel, and uh, I'm really wanting to set up a tour just to let you know that your support of this book and this project is so valuable that I want to personalize your copy. I can't wait for this to get out there with people. So guys, this has been a fantastic story. We know where we can find Mark. Let's talk about where we can find me and kind of wrap this whole thing up. As always, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations, they're in video form. But your one-stop shop, it's dtdpodcast.net. There's going to be pictures of Mark. There's going to be links to Mark. You can buy his book on there. We're going to do everything we can to help you hear more of this guy's story because we think it's super important. So, dtdpodcast.net, you can find everything there, audio, video, everything will set you up with this show and what's happening in the future. Now that you know where you can find me, you know where you can find Mark, let's talk about the guys that make this show possible, Mac Belts and Police Coffee. Everyone knows about Mac Belts, and we know that nothing stands up to wear and tear like a good leather belt. If you're looking for the toughest leather belt on earth, then you've come to the right place. Mac belts. They're handcrafted in the USA by veterans who are serious about their craft. And if you're looking for a belt that's tough enough for your active lifestyle and help support those who've given so much to our country, look no further than Mac belts. It's the toughest belt on the planet. Everybody knows my buddy Mac Alexander over there, retired Navy SEAL, putting out a product that I can 1000% stand behind. I have two of them myself. I wear one every day. They're a perfect solution for casual or dress wear, ideal for utility or firearms carry. They're of the highest caliber of American craftsmanship, and they're the toughest belts on earth. You can find this and so much more at MacBelts.com. Now let's talk about coffee. Police Coffee is an officer-owned business, and they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch, it's roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. Their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. And when I say their flavor, they have eggnog, they have pumpkin spice, they have my favorite, One Ranger. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But they don't waste one drop, like I said, when flavor's concerned. Their coffee's some of the best in the business, and it also helps serve an important cause. They give back to my community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. 
And like I talked about One Ranger, the newest flavored coffee you're sure to love. Medium bodied coffee with a smooth and sweet pecan flavor. It's probably the best combination in the world. It's rich, sweet, nutty, and buttery. Flavor, it cuts right through coffee's natural acidity, and it gives you a smooth and satisfying coffee experience. And when you go to policecoffee.com, DJK10 will get you 10% off your order. Make sure you stop by MacBelts.com and policecoffee.com. Guys, that's going to be it for this week. Mark, I'm so honored that you came here. I'm so honored that you sent me this book. That's going to be it, guys. That's Mark. I'm DJ. This is it. We'll see you on the next one. We're out of here.